1: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com
2: Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverti And I'm Mart Watson. And this is the Mankind Podcast. We're going to take a deep dive into masculinity, exploring what being a man actually means, along with a variety of brilliant guests.
3: You know, men talking about men is a notoriously underrepresented area of podcasting. Not anymore.
2: Good morning, everybody. It's Michael here. Mark's there. We hope you are well. It is a long bank holiday weekend. I feel like I'm on like a drive time radio show, actually, with that kind of tone of voice.
3: That could be quite good, actually. Um, Well, maybe that's the next thing for you, Michael. (laughs) Uh, But you're right. This is a long weekend, which means that people have even more leisure time to listen to this episode than usual, I I would hope. It's a lovely one as well
2: with Devin. Devin Abanez, who is the first gay major league rugby player in the US. Gosh, I got all those words right in a row. Congratulations, me. Hello, Devin. <laughs> How are we doing? Good, thank you. Got to
4: get your Twitter scrolls in. It's okay. It's a nice pre-podcast routine.
2: One of my friends, Jamie, has had a run-in with a Mark and Spencer stir fry, which is like a, a posh supermarket. Well, that's drama. The drama.
4: Prime Twitter content. I am very aware of Mark and Spencer's. That was like my treat when I was in uh, Scarborough when I was living there. I would go there every time they had like sales. <laughs> <laughs> very soothing
2: voice as well, actually. Someone who could read a lovely bedside story, I think.
3: One of the most listenable voices that we've had so far, I think, and... um Yet again, something completely new for the podcast, as you say, an openly gay professional rugby player. I mean, there's a really grim injury story in this one. Uh, it's soothing apart from that, I would say. Oh, yes, I forgot about that. I was about to say content warning for those
2: who, and then I thought, just like breathing. Just th- Content warning for those who like breathing, because this is a...
3: There's a little bit of a bother with his neck at one point, yeah. Other than that, though, really nice episode. <laughs> we really enjoyed it. I mean, you know, this, this is a guy that's a sportsman, so it's my kind of thing, but also... Okay, so my kind of thing. Okay, so your sort of thing. It's right <laughs> in our sweet spot. If people don't enjoy this, I don't even know whether they're listening to mankind. Have a lovely time. Well, hi everyone, it's Mark Watson and Michael Trakoverti here. I, Pause I, between knowing who you were there. I, I was just weighing up whether to introduce you, and in the same time, it's a bit of a power move by me. Right. But I have. Yeah. I, I'm trying to sort of marginalise you a bit here because <laughs> um, it hasn't happened enough. Yeah. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners will know that there is a regular sort of tug of war between me and Michael to either get the podcast to be about sport or anti-sport almost and uh, <laughs> here the pendulum swings back in my direction. We have Devin Ibanez. Devin, well firstly, hi. Hello. And would you like to say a little bit about who you are and well, what you do? Absolutely.
4: Um. So as you mentioned, I'm Devin Ibanez. I recently came out as the first openly gay professional rugby player in the United States. I've been playing rugby for about 12 years and I've traveled all around the world from New Zealand, Australia, England, and now I'm back in Boston where I just recently made my coming outposts um, and I've been with my partner for three years now.
2: There's a lot to unpack within that one sentence. <laughs> there really is. It's just...
4: One run-on sentence, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
3: well, we've had longer, we've spoken longer run-on
2: sentences <laughs> yeah, than that. You've played rugby for 12 years. You're 20, 25, is that right?
4: No, but I appreciate the uh, underselling. I'm I'm 27. 27. Oh, same age yeah. as me. Look, at us. I'm 50, yeah. <laughs>
3: but that's yeah. like nearly half of your life you played rugby for. I
4: guess I guess if you do the math, yeah, that's <laughs> it's a long time. And
3: rugby's not it's not the first sport that you come to in the United States growing up as a, a sporty kid, obviously.
4: No, so I actually I was a swimmer for a lot of my life. So I swam until I was about 13 years old and then I just kind of got bored of swimming back and forth in a pool. Going up and down, yeah. yeah.
3: (laughs) I always think that when I'm watching people that are really good swimmers, I'm like, you're very good at this, but geez, there's a a lot of it, isn't there? (laughs) Well, then the
4: second you turn 14 as well, that's when they start doubling the amount of distances you do in training. And I was just like, I'm out, guys. I'm (laughs) I'm packing it in. I'm going home.
3: (laughs) And so you looked for other sports.
4: Yeah, so that's when I started to try to branch out. I had a brief attempt at playing American football, and I quit after two months because I was getting bullied and called homophobic slurs pretty much every day and it just wasn't for me. And then I eventually tried to pick up baseball, which was my last attempt at picking up a new sport before rugby, because I'd never played it before. It was one of my favorite sports growing up, and I tried out for our first year freshman baseball team, and I was one of four people not to make the team.
3: Yeah, <laughs> so... <laughs> You could have formed your own tiny team, just one on each base.
4: Yeah, I was devastated.
3: And that's when I was like,
4: you know what, Maybe, maybe I need to start looking elsewhere for sports.
3: It's a tough feeling when you the sport which you love the most, you, you realise, is is not going to work out for you. It didn't love me back, yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. The sports, so often sports don't love you back. I have found in my time, not
2: many sports have loved me back, particularly.
3: No, you've had a very frosty relationship. No, but I do like, I
2: like individual sport. Like, if you can count, like, running and, like, exercise classes as sport can you yeah I was about to
4: say you do exercise classes and you're like a fitness instructor that's pretty sporty someone watched Bake Off (laughs) (laughs) here we go again (laughs) I may follow you on Instagram (laughs) the pendulum swings back yes it does (laughs) to be fair this is not primarily
3: a rugby podcast I accept that not yet we should ask Devin what what we always ask about I'll
2: let you do it this time actually I I always I (laughs) monopolise this first question and I feel like it's unfair it normally is you yeah Yeah. let's see how you do I'll mark it against my (laughs) previous attempt this is very generous of
3: you Um, Devin was there a moment you look back on where you first were aware of masculinity as a thing? it? Do you remember a first brush with the, the idea of it?
4: That's always a bit of a tough one, right? I think it's hard yeah. thinking back to that age, but I think that my, my father was always very, I'm going to be open with my emotions. He wasn't afraid to cry. He wasn't afraid to be vulnerable. So I didn't really get those traditional signals of masculinity from mm. him. Mm. It was actually probably from the first kind of instances I remember was I have an uncle who lives in Florida And he was very much more the traditional kind of masculine figure. He wanted me to be able to, you know, fix things and be strong and not be so sensitive and easy to cry. And I think he was somebody who had really impacted me because I was like, I want to just, (laughs) I want to be able to feel my emotions. I I want to cry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. like, uh, let me cry if I want (laughs) to cry. So he was very much polar opposites with my dad. And so I think that's the first time that I was like, oh, this is how most people think men should be.
2: (laughs) Mm And when you're at school, what kind of, Often schools where you see lots of gender roles starting to form between boys and girls and uh, the difference, because at school you don't necessarily know there's even a possibility of not being a boy or a girl. Yeah. Do you recall that manifesting at all during your school career?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think as young as when you're five or six years old, right, you start seeing who's getting bullied and who is doing the bullying, right? Yeah. And often yeah. it's the people who are doing the bullying, who are making the friends and who are getting positive feedback from their peers and often the people who were being bullied were people who were softer spoken or not as athletic or masculine in that way. So I think that I was aware of it at that age because it was just so clear who was lifted up in those types of traditional spaces and told you are correct, you are doing the right things and who was told, you are different and being kind of pushed off to the side and not fitting into any box.
2: Then you sort of bizarrely seem to fit into both boxes, which is what's (laughs) sort of unique about (laughs) this situation. We don't talk to many out sports people because there aren't that many out sports people, especially in Britain. People tend to come out after they've retired from their sport. But I mean, when you were growing up, you mentioned that you were bullied, but Mm. then you were also athletic, which is the opposite camp somewhat somewhat (laughs) but like somewhat is more than some other people (laughs) like yeah how did that kind of conflict sit at school did you feel like you were part of the of the in crowd or were you sort of further outside of it yeah how was your peer group I suppose
4: I think that I feel like I was a little bit distanced from both sides right Right. I mean I, I was really into sports so I connected more with The males in my class and those would be who my friends are, but those are also the people who would be using, you know, homophobic language and who I wouldn't be able to fully connect with and share myself with. But then on the other hand, I identified for a lot of my life as bisexual and a lot of girls who would see me would assume okay he seems relatively masculine he plays sports he's probably straight so i think there was a barrier there as well where i so know it's a lot kind of the
3: worst of both worlds for you basically exactly yeah. and i
4: think a lot of queer people kind of take that solace in having female friends growing up and for me it just wasn't really a thing that happened i kind of struggled to connect on
3: both sides mm. yeah too masculine for one side and not enough for another side kind of thing and then
4: even within the gay community as well like i think that later in life after I graduated college and I started to kind of venture out to say okay maybe I'll go to a gay bar or go to a party I think that gay men were very guarded around me as well because they're just sort of looking at me
3: like is why is he here right why did this guy show up people have talked about this before in the podcast and it's as a straight guy it's I feel naive to, to say it really but I never imagined the kind of this distrust or tribalism even between different factions of that, because it's very easy to just think of, oh, yeah, well, there's gay people, you know, but there's obviously an incredible number of approaches to being gay and internal judgment even from one area like of gay life.
2: element to of, look, if you look athletic or a certain way, you sort of come to represent a group that has notoriously oppressed or bullied mm. other younger gay people. And as, as far as I understand it, you came out when you were quite young, actually.
4: Yeah, I, I came out when I was 12 years old. Um, so I came out to my parents really young, but I mean, going off what you're saying, I totally understood it from a perspective of them being hesitant because I represented something that had, you know, been traumatic for a lot of gay people seeing Mm. somebody who represents kind of that jock, you know, I show up to a gay bar wearing athletic shorts and a t-shirt and they're like, I swear I met this guy at school. Why is he? Yeah. And he kicked the shit out of me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that I always like trying to strike up a conversation or even just like, basic interaction there was always a sense of I could tell the other person being like where is he coming from here like is this like mm. a flirtatious conversation is he an ally is he a fellow queer like I could just always tell people struggled to kind of place
3: me and yet at the same time you're trying out for an American football team and you're on the wrong end of like homophobic stuff yeah. and I can see why you didn't feel like you had a foot in any camp quite were you known to be gay to those people or do you just mean there was a culture of casual homophobia in sports like that at school level definitely just a culture of it I think that also I had come in from a situation
4: where I was actually a very badly behaved child let's let's put it that way (laughs) I I had a lot of times in my elementary school where I was suspended quite frequently for acting out like I said I struggled with social skills I really didn't feel like I was connecting with anybody really in a lot of ways so After that, I actually was in an alternative school where I didn't take classes for three years it was like this very much like go out into nature and sort of learn yourself situation so when I started playing football I had just come back from that Mm. where I was now this weird kind of alternative kid from another school who nobody knew or wanted to stick up for you know
3: there's nothing like hearing that someone's been at a weird school before your school that's the kind of thing that kids (laughs) love to talk about (laughs) he didn't even go to classes he just went to the woods yeah
2: the acting out like (laughs) I, I know it's easy to look back and kind of psychologize backwards about why you were acting out. But was there a sense of what you were kind of lashing out against at the time?
4: I think what I was mostly lashing out against was authority (laughs) And, and being told that I needed to be a certain way and sit in a seat for eight hours. A lot of it came from I had a very high energy level They thought that I had, you know, pretty severe ADHD, but my parents are both lifetime educators and the school was trying to pressure them to put me on ADHD medication. And they were just like, our son is 11 years old and has a lot of energy. We're going to let this play out instead of putting him on medication straight away. So that was where a lot of the tension back and forth kind of came from.
3: I really, I have an eleven-year-old son, and if I looked for medication every time he had an excessive energy, he'd be on about twenty-five different things by <laughs> now. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> you just have to accept that this is how it is.
2: And did going into nature, going into nature, going into the nature, Devin, <laughs> did that kind of calm you slightly, or did it, did it? What did it do to you?
4: Yeah, I think that it just gave me an outlet to be active. And a lot of what I did when I was at the school is I would play ultimate frisbee or I would like run around and I would just kind of interact with people. I think for me, that's what I needed, because like I said, I was really lacking in kind of connecting with people and having those sorts of social skills Mm. so being in a very like rigid structured school where you're not supposed to interact with classmates while you're in session right you're not supposed to do all these things and speak out in these different ways that I think having that ability to just be outside and not have those restrictions was something that was really therapeutic for me.
2: And while all that's going on you've told your parents uh, about your sexuality but you're not necessarily sharing that elsewhere was that a conscious decision and how did that impact on you
4: well so i mentioned i was 12 when i told them that was while i was at that school actually so that Mm. was when i'm in this big kind of journey of learning myself a little bit more connecting with other people and that's where i met my first ever gay friend so i was about there weren't any grades in the school as well. So it was a big mixing of ages. So I was like 12 and my first gay friend was like 15. All right, And yeah. so he was openly gay, aware of you know his sexuality and probably could kind of sense I was going through something similar. And we created a great friendship and he was sort of who gave me the confidence to kind of understand what my identity was and tell my parents. So when I was at that school, quite a few people knew who I was comfortable telling. But the second I changed schools, it was complete reset, right? Like my first interaction before classes even start is me being at football training, being called a faggot on the daily and having this kind of thrown at me.
2: Why would they call you
3: that? What behavior did they ascribe that word to? I was quiet. Right, that's enough for some boys. (laughs) Yeah,
4: yeah. You know, I wasn't out there using the same language on other people. I was Mm. probably relatively soft-spoken and friendly and I was just an easy target because nobody wanted to stick up for me. So I think that that was a big part of it.
3: And then when you found rugby, I mean, rugby over here is quite a big sport, like at schools and stuff, and is a big sport nationally, and maybe less so than than football, I mean, as in soccer, but it still does have a pretty uneasy relationship with different sexualities. I think at most levels, there is no, there's Gareth Thomas, of course, but there's no Mm -hmm. openly gay out player um, on a national level here. So was the rugby community one that was less of a culture of homophobia, or, or was it just that? you'd found the game that was right for you, so it didn't impact on you as much, or? It was both. I think that when I entered
4: it at the level that I did, which was the high school level, There wasn't a lot of homophobia. Mm. And I think that, you know, there was still some of the use of, you know, saying gay as a way to belittle something or things like that. But it was much less of a pointed way of, yeah, like I said, being called a slur on the daily to try to bring me down. Mm. I felt like rugby actually had a big culture of positivity in the US and kind of supporting each other in a way to help each other learn. And the reason that was is because, like you said, rugby is not as established.
3: here. Yeah, there wasn't the history. So you were starting more from scratch. Yeah, we all had to go in like we're learning this together, you know that is interesting i think even soccer you know football in, in the usa has far less of a history a tradition of um aggression and toxic masculinity because again mm-hmm. the americans didn't pick it up till much later so it's much more female involvement in football over there for example hmm. a- and there's less of a automatic connection between soccer and well violence and, thuggery. and I, I, so i guess it's the same with rugby if you're if it isn't bound up with all like a hundred years of sporting baggage like it is here then you get to make your own rules a bit yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, with football, so much of it is these were
4: kids who've been playing growing up. We all have an idea of what football looks like on the highest level, American football in this case. Yeah, yeah, And in rugby, we didn't have any context of what it looks like. We don't know if we're good at
3: it or bad at it. All yeah, we know is we're just there trying to figure it out. Making up as you go along. Yeah, And it
2: seems yeah. it's... We'll talk about the, the Scarborough episode. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's
3: a whole episode.
2: It seems like there was... Well, we all know rugby is quite physically demanding. Like, it's a pretty hard sport on your body.
3: And you're a hooker, is that right? I beg your pardon. This will sound odd to you, I don't think you should ask that kind of question. (laughs) I believe
2: the term is sex worker.
4: (laughs) I've had a few different um, positions over the years. I've played hooker. I bet
2: you have, David, my word.
4: (laughs) i played hooker when i was younger um now i play more flanker
3: all oh, right but you're still a forward i am still a forward yes i'm still one of the piggies <laughs> even among the positions these are the more demanding positions these are the guys that are in the scrum
2: massive physically demanding i suppose is the phrase and that's yeah stereotypically quite a masculine environment to be working within where yeah. it's about physical strength and mm-hmm. all of that sort of stuff did you feel that kind of pressure on you or was it was that something that you loved and that you enjoyed
4: I think that in American football, I felt it as a pressure because I didn't enjoy the pads and it hurt Mm. and I wasn't getting positive feedback. So it was like, not only was I not doing well, I was also being told that I wasn't good enough. In rugby, when I kind of got rewarded for physicality and told that I was doing the right things, it really motivated me. And also as time went on, I kind of realized that being told that I couldn't do something motivated me. I mean, as a rugby player, I was quite small and I wasn't a crazy athlete. So a lot of a lot of times along the way, I was kind of told that I just couldn't do it. And I always liked to use that fuel to kind of propel me forward. And I think that being a closeted rugby player also really gave me a lot of fuel that I could use in that way and just kind of turn into aggression.
3: Yeah, Very interesting.
2: Is it a competitive environment that you're training in or does it feel more like a... Like a- I don't really have another, an alternative because I don't know what it's like. All I can imagine is that it's competitive.
4: <laughs> it's very competitive. Well, the,
3: the level that you're playing at, it must be highly competitive now because you're playing at a high level, yeah. Yeah,
4: it's very competitive, especially in that professional environment. I mean, it's every day you're trying to put it all on the line and try to get a spot over the person next to you. So it's mm. it can be very, very competitive, and that's where I – drew my motivation from through a lot of my rugby career. I mean, I mentioned I had some behavioral issues growing up. A lot of those were based in anger and just lashing out and not being able to control that. So when I started playing rugby, I had this very clear outlet where I could use anger and translate it in a very direct and
3: physical way. Yeah, you can wallop someone really hard legitimately Yeah, in, yeah. In <laughs> I guess that kind
2: of leads into my question. I mean, a very, very stereotypical base masculine behaviour is the assumption of, of competitiveness. And is that a word? Competitivity? Yeah, that's fine. Competitivity?
3: Yeah, yeah back yourself. Yeah. Well, Best, go with yeah. competitiveness. Yeah. Be
2: more Devin. <laughs> <laughs> Be more Devin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess that competitiveness is also the thing that kind of goes alongside it is that kind of aggression and that it's sort of dog eats dog that kind of vibe how did the competitive i keep saying competitiveness but how did the competitiveness manifest in your world while you're training
4: yeah i think that it's always like i said manifested itself in a way where i just always felt like i needed to prove other people wrong and i needed to really push myself in ways that other people weren't i think that you know and this is a story i've told a couple times there was this American wrestler named Dan Gable, and he had his family murdered when he was young, and they never found out who did it. And he went on to be this world champion wrestler, and a lot of people asked him how he did it, and how he trained so hard. And he told told people that he would picture that the other person across from him every time was the person they didn't catch for the murder of his family. Yeah, and he right. would take himself into that intense place that nobody else could get to. So I kind of tried to translate that in my own rugby career where I would convince myself that I was playing against people who are homophobic. I would convince myself that people wouldn't back me if they knew I was gay and that they wouldn't think that this is something I would be capable of. And I really used that to push myself and kind of have that edge over the years.
3: You would then tackle them really hard. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It works. Do you think that
2: was a right assumption? I mean, I know it's not an assumption, but do you think to to kind of draw it out that there is a, a homophobia issue in... In particularly your sport have you found that to be the case or not
4: there is I think that if you compare it to other sports it might not be as severe but I've I've been called you know a homophobic slur in a match before it's not something that hasn't happened and I see it thrown around in training I think that overall people are quite supportive but I know that those people are out there and I think that when you're in the closet you tend to amplify the negative voices right they tend to kind of take over so for me I allowed those negative voices to just become this driving force for me to say that when I go out on the field, I don't need to take sympathy. I don't need to play nice with these people because they're not people who would support me. Mm. Yeah. Um,
3: You mentioned, was it Dan Gable, the wrestler? Yeah. Were there other people, are there other people that you look up to as... Examples of masculinity in sport or anywhere, but I guess specifically ways you can turn some of the dark side of masculine impulses into positives, like again, either in sport or anywhere, who are men that you, that have inspired you? I suppose the question is that basic, but I'm just really interested in sport. So I have put a slant on it. So I got a
4: couple, I'd say there is one for sport, but I'll start with just a general role model. I already mentioned my dad. I mean, for me, and I know a lot of other people, your dad is kind of the measure of what masculinity is. And Mm. my father was a public school teacher for over 20 years. He taught special education and English as a second language. And he was just somebody who always saw the best in other people and always had this incredibly positive outlook and felt like, he could express his emotions and always encouraged me to express mine and not be afraid of that. So I think he was an incredible influence for me to kind of be comfortable with myself and know that there is no one type of man and that there is strength in being vulnerable. Mm. But for a sporting hero, I didn't really have somebody that I can think about very early in life, a bit later on in life, like around late high school, early college. I found out about Mark Bingham, Um, For those who don't know, Mark Bingham was one of the people who overthrew the hijackers on 9-11 and caused their Mm. plane to actually crash in a field rather than Washington, D.C., where it was headed. He was an openly gay rugby player. Oh, I didn't know that. I did not know that. Yeah. So he actually started, was one of the first founders of the San Francisco Fog, which was one of the first inclusive gay rugby teams in the world. and after he passed away, he led to the creation of this amazing event, which is the largest amateur rugby tournament in the world known as the Bingham cup. So the Bingham cup is all these inclusive gay rugby teams travel from all over the world and they come together to basically compete in like the world cup of gay rugby and honor Mark Bingham. And when I heard about that, and I actually attended a Bingham cup in 2018 and had a chance to meet his mother who unfortunately recently passed away. She, really inspired me when I saw how many people were impacted by her son's story. I mean, people from as far as Australia who considered her like a second mother because of the way that she carried on his legacy and was this example of this great masculine hero who was also proud of being gay and knowing that those weren't mutually exclusive things and that gay people could be a hero and could be somebody that anybody could look up to, not just another gay person. And I think that seeing that impact Really kind of made it click for me that I could have an impact like that as well. Like, there's not a lot of other people like me willing to speak up in this way. Maybe I can come forward and impact people in the same way that
3: Mark did. That's great. Because what a legacy to have, to have like a a tournament like that that brings together hundreds of people who you'll never meet. But yeah, that's really moving.
2: So, I think we're nearing the, the Scarborough incident. We're creeping towards the Scarborough <laughs> incident. <instance. laughs> <laughs> but before we do, <laughs> it sounds like kind of along the way, you started to kind of feel like you wanted to speak up and speak out, but you weren't. Yeah. And I don't mean that as a criticism. It's I, I no. mean it more in terms of what did it feel like not speaking your truth to these people? having been fairly open with your family and some of those close friends earlier in your life, and then to be playing the game which you knew you wanted to be your career, but mm-hmm. you weren't coming out. So I guess my question was, why didn't you come out? And what did it feel like not being able to share that side of you? Or did you?
3: Gosh, lots of questions in in one sentence. <laughs> They're all leading to the same kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> it won't you. take as long as, to answer as it sounds. <laughs> as long as it took to ask, yeah, hopefully.
4: I think that the hesitations around coming out were, rugby was like you said 12 years of my life like that's half of my life where this was the central thing for me and I think that the idea of coming out and being just sort of labeled as that right being labeled as the openly gay rugby player or the gay rugby player and not just being known for being incredibly dedicated to the sport or loving what I did that idea really scared me for some reason and I think that I wanted to really just be known for my merits and not have my sexuality attached to my accomplishments
3: yeah you didn't want to become a poster but boy. but then there for... was also fear of losing
4: opportunities
3: yeah i can see why it would be massive responsibility
4: yeah start. and i i didn't want to be like you said the poster boy but i also didn't want to lose opportunities as well because i wasn't sure you know will i be viewed as a distraction especially on the professional level am i just you know too much of a distraction to have on a team? Is it taking away from what I can contribute? So those were a lot of things that were kind of playing on my mind. Yeah,
3: all of it works against you just being a rugby player, which is what you want to do. This, this comes from a place of complete ignorance, so
2: I must apologise. Do <laughs> there... It. It's always good to start a question with that, isn't it? Well, it's an honest <laughs> approach, Michael. We often we often <laughs> do that, is. yeah.
1: We appreciate that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Are there examples of people losing their careers that you knew because of their sexuality?
4: Yes. Um, I mean, specifically within rugby, I've known of a few people. I mean, if we're looking at kind of more public eye, if you just look at it historically, you can't necessarily say they lost it because they were gay. But, for example, the first openly gay NFL player, Michael Sam, he got drafted, never played in the NFL again after he came out. Jason Collins came out (laughs) in the NBA, never played again after he came out. So it's one of those things where did they maybe position it towards the end of their careers or Mm. was there another thing at play, but a personal example I had and actually somebody at the 2018 Bingham cup as well. Right. When I had recently met Alice, Mark Bingham's mother, and I first had this idea that I wanted to be the first openly gay professional rugby player. I spoke to one of my mentors who I randomly ran into at Bingham. He didn't know I was gay. I'd known he had been openly gay. And I told him about my goal. And that's when he told me something that I'd never known about him, which is that when he was younger, and he's quite a bit older than me, he's in his 60s. When he was younger, he was actually a star rugby player in Australia and that he had loved the sport growing up. And when he was 17 years old, going into his final season, he was gonna be up for captain. He was one of the best players in the region. And before the season started, the coach took him aside and said, look, you're not gonna be captain this year. The old boys and the sponsors on the team don't want a faggot in the first 15. And he never even told anybody for the next 50, 40 years that he even was a rugby player. I'd known him for five years and never even knew that he had had that experience. So to hear that for me was so validating to know that what I was gonna do did matter and that there are people being pushed away.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've hit the moment We've hit yeah. 2016. I mean, we, we could not explain <laughs> what happened. I mean, you, you suffered a near fatal injury. Um, would you mind kind of... It's
3: changed the course of your life to some extent. It's fair yeah, to say. Um, yeah. it, it
2: seems like it kind of was a bit of a driver. And of course, we'll come to you meeting yeah. Fergus, but I feel like this is the, is the time to kind of talk about, about that moment where, where it kind of... Oh, my God. I'm, I've literally... Why am I still talking?
1: Hold up. What was that?
3: Ladies and gentlemen, the Scarborough incident. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the Scarborough incident.
4: (laughs) Well, so I mentioned what I was just talking about was 2018. So as you said, this incident was 2016, but it was actually very early 2017. So it was March 2017. I had a match in Scarborough where I went to make a tackle and I took a shoulder directly to the Adam's apple. And I immediately kind of went down. There was an immediate voice change. I immediately had this like awful Christian Bale, Batman-esque like terrible (laughs) impression voice where I was just like scream whispering at people. And I was told by the trainer that I was fine to finish the match and you know that's classic I, old
3: school I, northern uh, be fine. <laughs> be fine. Yeah. Yo,
4: sponge him down yeah verbatim yeah. his words were if you
3: can breathe unobstructed then you're fine to play on so. yeah rugby coaches at school used to always say if just run around it will feel better which looking back wasn't <laughs> not great medical advice for all i can injuries. also confirm that
2: normally when i run around i don't feel better
3: no but coaches have a, <laughs> a lot of faith in running things
4: off in rugby yeah. so then after the match i i finished the match and That's when I felt a tickle in my throat and I coughed and it was just blood. Um, So at that point, I showed that to the trainer and he was like, oh, yeah, no, you you do need to go to A&E. You're not fine. (laughs) Now the game's over. (laughs) Yeah. So then it was this whole thing of we were three and a half hours away from Scarborough in North Ribblesdale.
3: Yeah. Where was this game? Just to put it in context for people. Yeah.
4: So Settle England. I think the name of the team is North Ribblesdale. So it was about like a three hour ish drive from Scarborough. Yeah. A long way. Yeah. So. We were on a team bus, which makes it take more like four hours because, as you know, team buses can't exactly navigate the back roads of Northern England. You you don't go on a bus of any kind if you're looking to get somewhere urgently. (laughs) So we ended up not getting back to Scarborough until midnight. Um, I'd fractured my throat at 2 p.m. So I get back to Scarborough and they're starting asking me, like, oh, do you want us to take you to A&E? And I'm like, you know what, it's been... A long time. I haven't died. Like, I'm probably okay. I'm just going to go try to sleep it off. <laughs> and...
3: We're hiding under the table here, and we already know this. I, I, get, I get
2: like a shiver in the middle of your back. That you can't yeah. get it to go away. That's where it is currently.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and I actually remember just like Googling on my phone, like, am I going to die from this injury? Like, how how serious are we talking? Such
2: a millennial <laughs> thing to do. Hey, Google, am I going to die? Sorry for anyone's Googles who went off at
3: home just then. Again, it's a sign that your team's physio hasn't done a great job if 10 hours after the incident you're Googling it, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah, not, not ideal. So I ended up waking up the next morning and because of the swelling, I was sleeping on my back and I actually woke up kind of choking on my own spit. Whoa. So I sat up and I went back to sleep and the same thing happened. And I was like, all right, guys, we're we're going to any. Yeah, <laughs> and that's when they, you know, as soon as I got there, they transferred me by ambulance. They brought me to York Hospital because they had an ENT specialist there, and that's where they did all the scans. And they actually told me I had to stay overnight. They put me on steroids to reduce the swelling, and the next day was when they did all those scans, and they found that due to the swelling, my airway had actually been constricted to less than the width of like a pen or a pencil. Gosh, and. This was after a lot of the swelling had actually gone down. So I was very close to having my airway close completely. I had punctured a hole in my airway, so I was leaking air into my chest. So I had to go on antibiotics to avoid a fatal infection near my heart. I had severely bruised my vocal cords. And that was the first time that I really had to grapple with this idea of Oh wait you're not invincible like you mm. can't just go play 20 game rugby seasons back-to-back and it's always gonna be fine mm. and that's when I had to really evaluate like is rugby and going to play at a high level the only thing that's important to you because if this had been the game you died in that's all that you really would have been remembered for just that guy who pursued rugby yeah is that, is that enough is that enough for me and that's when I had this idea of well I know that I'm an openly gay player It's meaningful to me to be able to share that and hopefully inspire other people like i want to strive for that and i want that to become something that i can look back on and be proud of beyond just playing Mm. so that was that sort of Clicking moment where it was first the seed planted. And then, as I mentioned, two years later at Bingham is when I sort of further cemented that goal and said, I don't want to just be an openly gay player. I want to be the first openly gay professional rugby player in the US.
2: And when did you meet Fergus, who is your boyfriend? When did you meet him and how did that happen?
4: So that was in, I would say, December of 2017. So the very end of the same year I'd fractured my throat. The same year. I'd moved back to Boston after my stint in England. And he was over there studying. Um, He was doing research at Harvard laboratories on sleep deprivation. And we just met on a dating app. We decided to meet up and go on a date. And from there, we just started spending (laughs) as much time together as we possibly could. And we started officially dating, I think, on January 3rd. So just under a month after we met. And now we just celebrated our three year anniversary. Cool. So you you met, but you still weren't out, right? In rugby. In rugby, yeah. So he met my family really early, but he didn't meet my rugby teammates. <laughs>
2: right. So like, that's really interesting to me that you're kind of living this sort of double life in a way where you're out in some circumstances, mm-hmm. not out in others. Were you, I mean, were you out to your friends or was it just family?
4: Some of them. Yeah. I, I you know, it depended. I think that it's, and I'm sure that you can relate, Michael. I think that sometimes it can be an awkward thing to broach with people one by one and yeah. kind of, you know people you've known your whole life to be like hey we haven't talked in a really long time and I know we're having this big catch-up but by the way I'm also gay. Uh, yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> anyway what's been going on with you? Yeah
4: I think I really struggled to kind of work it in so it was very spotty I think there were some people I was out to and others I wouldn't but yeah. to go to your question of if it felt like I was living a double life I think that for so much of my career it didn't necessarily feel that way because I just convinced myself that my sexuality was just this small part of myself, right? And that it was just this minor detail that I didn't really need to share with people. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of that came from throughout high school and even all the way throughout my entire university career. I wasn't with any men. I didn't feel comfortable going to meet up with them. I went to the school in a very small college town. I didn't feel comfortable that I could go meet up with people and that it wouldn't get back to my rugby team.
2: Right. So mm.
4: there wasn't a lot that I was hiding in the sense of like, when I was dating Fergus, I couldn't tell my friends on the rugby team what I did that past weekend. I couldn't say, oh, I went with my partner up to Maine and we went snow tubing. Like that's when I started to have to lie and to say, oh, yeah, I just stayed home and didn't do anything. And that's when it started to feel more like, well, why am I not just being open about this thing that I'm not ashamed about, but I just keep hiding? So that's when I started having that. Do we know what snow
3: tubing yeah, is, Michael? Yeah, sorry
2: to interrupt, but I just, I've just written down snow tubing question mark. <laughs> You've never
3: heard of snow tubing? How does one snow tube? It sounds like something that might not be as big a scene in the UK as, as in uh, the northern United States, maybe. <laughs>
2: sorry to puncture. I mean, you were saying
3: something really er- erudite, but Mark
2: noticed me scribble that down because I, I had I felt no like the word <laughs>
3: snow tubing just struck a note in this room. And it wasn't right. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> can, can you describe
3: how one snow tubes, please? So it's basically
4: sledding, except you're on like a, same like if you were to go tubing down a river like just an inflatable rubber tube but they have like actual snow tubing places that you go in the northeast United States so like yeah. groomed hills basically like almost like a ski slope is this
2: like it's, it's, it's like, like you're skiing but you're in like one of those pool in inflatables
4: a like a dinghy sort of yeah thing. it's just is it like a donut yeah that you're, you're, you're in, sitting you're, in, in? <laughs> you're in a donut and it's just Jesus take the wheel hopefully
3: <laughs> I mean it, it sounds odd. quite <laughs> fun and terrifying
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
4: sorry to have interrupted you I mean you,
2: you were talking about no, the no you're um, good no we had to get closure on that no, to be clarified. we could just let <laughs> snow tubing hang in the air.
4: <laughs> the people need to know. Yeah.
2: The idea of. That strain, I, I understand that strain, and, and the coming out for friends was difficult. I mean, I know I lost lots of friends from my childhood when I came out, and that was that was difficult. Yeah.
4: Did you encounter that? Well, I don't think so, because like I said, I didn't tell people. So, yeah. I mean, I think if I was going to tell somebody, I was at the place where I was extremely certain that were gonna be okay. it wasn't going to be a thing. And I grew up in Massachusetts, which for people who don't know is like among the most socially liberal places in the US. So... I grew up in a place where it was the first state to legalize gay marriage, and it's like not the kind of environment where a lot of people are gonna be outspokenly against being gay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think more of what I was afraid of was that unspoken distance being there of me telling them that I was gay and them treating me slightly different even though they said that they were supportive. I don't think Mm. I was as worried about outright losing friendships um, but in rugby I was more worried about, like I said, losing opportunities because so many of the people in charge of rugby teams across the world are crusty old white men <laughs> who have been, who've been in the game
3: forever. <laughs> yeah, and the, the administrative bodies, the top people in rugby, a lot of them are those guys as well, so that filters yeah. down, I yeah. guess. Do you see that culture changing? Uh, you know, you've said that rugby's becoming more inclusive and all sport is maybe to some extent, but this may not be in your plans, but if you came back here to play again now... But as an openly gay player, what do you think it'd be like?
4: Well, that's definitely in the plans. I want to oh, go good. to the UK because I want to be closer to
3: Fergus, and I'm I'm ready for I'm
4: ready for a change of
3: pace. Yeah. So you're looking you're you are looking for a team here.
4: I am. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to be looking to move over there as soon as I can. Really. Oh, amazing.
3: And yeah, how do you feel that
4: will be in terms of the climate? I think it'll be fine in terms of my teammates and things like that. I mean, I'm sure that there'll be some people who will feel a certain type of way about it. And I mean the fact that I'm being very outspoken now about these issues, but I mean, by large, the support I've gotten from the rugby community has been amazing. And I mean, all of my teammates pretty much across the board have reached out to me. I think that anybody who wasn't supportive has more just been silent rather than <laughs> rather than actively saying things yeah. because I think they know. Just not giving you the ball and stuff. Yeah. Honestly,
2: though, home of hopes being quiet is what we all aim for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Worse so we're, we're we're getting places.
4: <laughs> so I think that it would probably be similar to that experience if I mm. were to play in the UK mm. that... Um, I think some people might just be a bit silent about it, but overall, I think it would be okay. But there's still a lot of work to be done around it.
3: Pretty good that you are at that, that we are at that stage at least, because that wouldn't have been true not long ago. I think.
4: Yeah. Talking yeah. of
2: being outspoken, though, you've also mentioned handling depression mm-hmm. before you come out publicly men's mental health is a hugely underrepresented area there's a uh, notable increases in suicides and risk of serious mental health issues which aren't spoken about particularly with men mm-hmm. um although they do exist of course in everybody can you describe kind of how that manifested for you how that felt for you and why you've chosen to speak about it because it is it's really important but it's also quite a personal thing
4: To talk about? I think part of the reason I spoke about it is because it's just, it's been a big part of my journey. And especially into making that final jump to coming out, a lot of my motivation was my depression. And I've spoken a little bit about it before I came out. I made the post on December 28th. One of the big catalysts for that was I had a family dog who passed away in late November very suddenly. And she was my best friend. And I think in the middle of a pandemic, one of the few kind of supports that I had. Mm. And when she passed away, I really went into a depression where not only was I not having anything going for me, rugby-wise, because we're in the middle of a pandemic, I didn't have anything going for me really relationship-wise because I couldn't see my partner. And now I felt like my personal life and my support system had really been thrown into a loop. Mm. So the reason I feel the need to discuss it is at that time, I didn't see a path for myself and i i looked ahead to the coming months and i felt you know where is this going that's going to take me somewhere meaningful like am i just going to be stuck in this cycle of saying i'm going to come out never coming out never making any progress towards something i know is important to me so that's when i sat down and i wrote out a list of goals and my goals were as simple as brush your teeth every day do your laundry every week like the most smallest and basic things you could do but one of those goals was to make my public coming out post because
3: that's bigger than the laundry isn't it that's a big thing a little bit bigger list, yeah it,
4: it took a little bit longer to
3: get to that but they're one. both
4: equally important yeah. i would say oh of course laundry is important michael <laughs> yeah. i know how you feel about cleanliness. so that's when i kind of got to that point where i was looking at that list it had been sat on that list for about a month and i was like I wrote this down because I know it's something that's going to help. Well,
2: you can't see it if you sat on it, Devin. That's a stupid yeah. thing to do. Gotta say, yeah, <laughs> put it on a table. For I've had it. things
3: on my to-do list for a month that are quite a bit more manageable than. <laughs> announced I'm the first openly gay professional we'll rugby player so a month isn't much actually. But you
2: had already created the handle on social media which was that gay rugger yeah. and what's yeah. fascinating is <laughs> early on in this conversation and sorry for listening to what everything you've said but you did no. say you didn't want to be labeled as the gay rugby player. Yep. There's a, there's a slight incongruity there <laughs> um, <laughs> that shows a, a clear journey I suppose.
4: It was that but I think a lot of it also came from this idea that so much of what i was trying to base my coming out journey on were rugby achievements right i told myself i was going to come out after i won the division one national championship in 2018. i told myself i was going to come out after i signed my contract in 2019 and i just kept trying to base it on a different accomplishment yeah and i think it got to the point where i told myself like you're doing this for other people's validity like the reason you're waiting for these accomplishments is so that when you come out People will say, oh, okay, it is legitimate you came out, you're actually a good rugby player and you've actually accomplished yeah, these things.
3: That makes complete sense. But
4: there comes a point where you can't do that anymore. Yeah. And so when I realized you can't that, wait forever, I was like, I can't keep basing this off of other people's perceptions yeah. of me. And so that's when I realized, well, if this other fear I have is being known as that gay rugby player, why am I letting this fear of other people labeling me as that hold me back? And so that's when I said, Well, why don't I just go complete 180 with it? label myself that gay rugby player take
3: the label yourself yeah, yeah. and then it.
4: also hope that other people who come out in the future don't have that same concern right be like well i won't be known as that gay rugby player this guy's already got the copyright so <laughs> yeah <laughs> someone can have the second gay rugby player as their handle yeah
3: <laughs> i know that people listening to this will be inspired by it in, in different ways what would your advice be to anyone who you know either is, is putting off coming out for whatever reason or not even coming out just anyone that's grappling with this task of revealing something about themselves which is difficult that's a nice way of putting it
4: i think that the biggest advice that i've given and it's always a bit of a tricky one right because there's so many places where coming out is still not even really a feasible option in the world like you don't have the conditions necessary for that to even be possible yeah but for people who it is possible and you do have that possibility ahead of you i think that it's really important to just take your time i mean I took my time, maybe a little bit more time than I would have liked, (laughs) but by the time I came out, I was very ready for it. And I think that it's important to know that there's no time limit you need to do it Uh in. Take that time to really build strong relationships. Take that time to find people who are gonna have your back no matter what happens. And then when you come out, it's just gonna be done on your time when you're ready for it. And I think Uh that that's really the most important thing. People get lost on trying to come out as soon as possible. And I do wish I'd come out earlier, but i don't think it's worth putting that unnecessary pressure on yourself mm. and saying well if i haven't come out at this time i've yeah. failed or i need to do it now
2: can you tell me about the moment that you clicked post like so you've we've got through all the 20 <laughs> is it 26 or were you 27 when you posted it
4: yeah 27
2: 27 years basically building up to you clicking the word post yeah it's a moment on social media you clicked it what happened like how did it it, it, it goes out into the
3: world. You'd be checking your likes a lot, wouldn't you? Yeah. How did that
4: feel? <laughs> uh, well, going off what he said about checking the likes a lot, I, I went the other way because like I said, I've been basing so much of this journey on what other people's perceptions would be. Right. When I made that post, I was really fully just doing it for me as selfish as that sounds. I was doing it. No, for, that's
3: great. That's much healthier. <laughs>
4: I was doing it for me and for my partner because my partner's been there in the dark for three years. I mean, he's so proud of our relationship and would post it on his social media. And I would ask him to make his social media private. And I think that him being there for that amount of time, I really felt like I was doing this as a way to kind of be almost like an open love letter to him of thanking him for being there for all these years. So when I clicked post, I also clicked turn off notifications. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I texted Fergus and I was just like, hey, I made a post and he was in the middle of a workout and he saw that he'd been tagged on Facebook and he went to look. He thought that it was gonna be just a picture of a cute dog, because that's usually what I would tag him in on Facebook. (laughs) Why have you interrupted me for this? Yeah, and he went in the middle of his workout and just immediately started
3: crying. And I think that it was a big moment and there's, I think there's a real lesson in that in, you know, the moment of turning off notifications because it wasn't about them. It was just about you and him. Yeah. And we could all assuming do those, a lot more stuff on those terms. Absolutely.
2: I think. But I'm also assuming those notifications came in. and um, oh, There would have been plenty, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think I was one of those notifications. But I, uh, I think, it, like, you've spoken about a lot of people across the whole world reacting and, and speaking because, like I said earlier, lots of the gay sports people that come out tend to be doing almost towards the end of their career or at yeah. the end of their career yeah. or after their after career. Yeah. Whereas you have done it during the career and that impact is pretty seismic, I suppose. And you said you've had even had past teammates contact you to tell you about their struggles, about their sexuality and that impact and things like that. How has that felt?
4: I mean, it's incredible. I'm so grateful for it. And I think that, you know, those years where I had this as a goal, I had it in my mind that, oh, I could have this great impact, right? I could, I could mm. inspire people, but... You don't really see it as real until it actually starts to manifest itself and getting those people reaching out to me and even just on the greater level of connecting with as many LGBTQ athletes as I have over the last two months. Like it's been so meaningful to me to be realizing that just my life experiences and just being honest about what I've gone through could impact people in that way it's just like so humbling to now be able to take something that i love like rugby and take something else i'm passionate about like speaking up about lgbtq and lgbtq inclusion in sport
3: there are a lot is... of them those
4: letters <laughs> <laughs> i always stumble over i'm getting i'm getting better
2: but those lgbtq <laughs> athletes are out there they do yeah, exist out yeah. there forever um, and they always will do i suppose you've kind of You've kind of peaked a bit too soon, Devin. I mean, you're 27 <laughs> and you've achieved the goal. Yeah, what are you going to do with your 30s? <laughs> what happens now? Like, what's next? Is it just hoping for normality in a sense? Or are there more things that you'd like to do?
4: No, I want to I want to get out there. I mean, the fact mm. that my story... I think is we all resonating. want to do that, Devin, to be honest. <laughs> I think that now that I've seen that I can have that kind of impact, I just want to maximize it. Yeah. Like, I want to just impact as many people as I can with my story and hopefully inspire other people's to kind of just step up and come forward and be themselves and feel safe in the kind of athletic space. So my future hopefully is going to be me doing a lot of community engagement, doing more podcasts like this, kind of trying to speak out about my experiences as much as I can. So I don't really want it to slow down. I want to kind of keep riding the wave and turn it into something that I can do for the rest of my life that I can be passionate about and hopefully make a good impact at the same time.
2: So you mentioned inspiring others. If someone was someone in sport right now is listening, not that they are, but they might be, who knows? Um, <laughs> some will be. Some might be, yeah. We have
3: a well, some surprising yeah. range of people. If there listen.
2: was a young queer person in sport that was scared of the unknown and worried that it might impact on their life and their profession, what would you say
4: to them? Well, I already kind of touched on it with building the support system. I still think that's yeah, incredibly important. Yeah, don't come before
3: you're ready. Yeah,
4: incredibly important. I can't, Like, I cannot say that enough, how important that is. But I think that, unfortunately, and the place that I had to get to is you have to understand that you're doing this for yourself. Mm -hmm. And there has to be an understanding of this might be the end of your athletic career, unfortunately. And I think that you have to get to a point where you accept that that could be the impact that it has and know that you are still happy in that regardless of the outcome. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's a very difficult place to get to, but that's really where I had to get to before I felt like I could come out and not be worried about those types of consequences is you have to just be proud of what you're about to do and know that you did it as a way to be true to yourself and inspire other people. And your athletic career is secondary to that.
3: Secondary to being able to live with yourself in in an enhanced way. Yeah. Mm it's yeah. inspiring it's also a very tough path but that's why people like it is like you're important
2: yeah absolutely i mean i feel like it's i, I want to talk more but i think we're kind of we've, we've reached the end of the time <laughs> uh so i must ask you the question we ask everybody which i'm sure you know already but what three qualities would you build into a man to best equip them for for this world. And it, you can take that in any direction that could be into a, a sports person. I'm or, imagining
3: the man in a rugby shirt, for example.
2: But <laughs> men sometimes don't wear rugby shirts, Mark. Oh, I know. But, but whatever man, <laughs> this one can, whatever man you would like to build, Devin, <laughs> what three qualities would you build into them to make them best equipped they could be for this world?
4: I think that it's the same qualities I'd put into any person, right? I, yeah. I don't think that there's anything yeah. specific to being a man or a woman or any gender identity. Um, I would say that the most important thing for me would be starting with empathy i think that empathy is the core of everyone and i I guess i take that from my father of just seeing that he was had empathy almost to a detriment at times right where empathy can kind of overpower your logic but when you put yourself out there with empathy in that way when you get burned it's not you, right? It's the other person. And I think yeah, that mm. having that empathy is so important.
2: That's a nice way of thinking about it, actually.
4: Yeah. It,
3: it makes you empathy among other things. as you work out why people are behaving the way they are, then you internalize it less yourself.
4: And then the next one I would say would be passion. I think that mm. having passion for what you're doing. And like I said, even around empathy, if you're passionate about being empathetic towards other people and their experiences and speaking out about it, I think that's so important. And the last one I would say is just resilience or determination. I think that anybody can benefit from having those things. And for me, I felt like those were so important in my journey to just be able to stick with things no matter what was thrown at me, no matter what injuries. And I think that that applies to every person in any situation, even outside of sports.
3: So do I, but I hope most people don't have that thing with the Adam's apple i yeah, you I'd describe. I really do hope that. <laughs> I, I wish for all our listeners that they avoid that specific You thing. have
2: a very soothing voice, Devin. I might send you one of my favorite books and just get you to read it to me while I, while I can't sleep. It's been lovely speaking to <laughs> I you. agree, yeah. It's been a real <laughs> balm. Yeah, oh, thank you guys. It's be really wonderful Isn't something you imagine yeah. saying to oppression It's lovely had. but it's i will true. i will be messaging you my favorite novel for you to reach to me uh, in installments I'll, I'll accept weekly installments
3: maybe that'll be
4: my career
2: <laughs> do you have anything to plug that you'd like to or anyway we would like to direct people towards yeah
3: where can people find you online and stuff
4: uh yeah definitely check out my instagram at that um i've also got a website that gayrugger.com my twitter handle also the same at that facebook you can find me there Um, And then beyond that, something I want to just kind of plug and discuss is I'm working a lot right now on talking about the World Rugby ban against trans athletes Mm. competing in international competition. I'm doing a lot of work around trying to bring some awareness to that and sort of the faulty science that was applied to it and sort of the shady dealings that went on behind the scenes with that. So This is important, yeah. So where can people find more resources about that? So rugbyforall.co is their Instagram handle. They're an organization run by a lot of trans athletes and trans rugby players who are trying to push back against this ban. Um, they put out probably the most resources. And then also on my page, I'm going to be trying to share a lot Amazing. of stuff about ways to get involved and ways to kind of hopefully impact change.
2: We'll pop the link to that in our yeah, in the will. show notes as well. That's really oh, thank um, you. a really great way of sharing a platform. So thank you for that. Um, and thank you for
3: talking to us this has been really great
2: yeah thank you so much have a wonderful uh, rest of your day i hope we'll, we'll see you over
3: playing here you know soon yeah we'll go but for a drink you. after one of your games yeah. i can't <laughs> pretend i'll be playing with you i'll come to the actual match and then we'll meet up with michael afterwards yeah <laughs> i'll probably pop to a drag show during uh so yeah, lovely yeah. Just i'm to down, meet down for you. the drag show
2: <laughs> 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 thanks devin have a good day guys thanks. thank you very you much, and that was Devin Ibanez. Really wonderful conversation and a very soothing voice, like I said. Um, we will pop the, the link to that charity he mentioned down below in the below. I mean, you can't see this. What do we say
3: in the in the comments? Oh, I spot? don't mind the below as just a, a kind of the symbolic <laughs> way of talking about uh, our audience's kind of forum for interacting with us. And I will also be keeping an eye on um, Devin's rugby career when he does. Well, if and when he does come over here, this is. I think it's stretching a point to say that you'll keep an eye on it Michael so I'll do it for both of them I might
2: go for a drink with him but I, I'm not really interested in him fanning about with balls um, anyway no, uh, we've had some more lovely contact coming in from, oh, our, yeah. from our social media um, Instagram and Twitter as always we are at mankind podcast and our email address is mankindpodcast at gmail.com i believe mark's
3: doing the reading out this week this is a nice message from someone called ellis uh, i just wanted to add to the chorus of appreciation for this podcast i started listening after seeing michael on bake off okay fine doesn't matter how you come to us um <coughs> but the wide variety of perspectives has kept me listening as a trans person it's been incredibly refreshing to hear these frank personal and accessible conversations about gender You two provide an excellent example for other cisgender folks by respectfully and meaningfully discussing gender and masculinity. It goes on like this for a bit, and then Ellis says, sorry, that got a bit wordy. (laughs) But thank you for putting this lovely little source of positivity into the world. That's lovely, isn't it? Thank you very much to uh, Ellis for that. (laughs) Next week, see you for Nikesh Shukla. You've heard the podcast of Nikesh? Well,
2: I mean, I'm
3: the one who asked you guys, have I could come on too. exactly, yeah, it's a, like I was straight in Watson's DMs, begging him. It was it was quite honestly embarrassing. So yeah, if... let me into the hallowed castle. <laughs> this, this, I hope this is being picked up by ourselves. Can this because can because be the intro? Can we just, just use this? Well, yes, it can. As far as I'm concerned, we do a lot of doing ourselves down and all this. And, and oh. Who are your role models? Is it us? Ha ha ha. And this is all well and good because about time it's we a, are his role models. Well at last <laughs> a guest is treating us with the reverence I will use the word. <laughs> the reverence <laughs> that we and this podcast. Nikesh Shukla is the author of a couple of books, including the recent memoir Brown Baby. Brown
2: Baby is a gorgeous book, actually. I read it and it's one of those books that I read and then immediately bought copies for lots of my friends to send out to. It's honestly beautiful. Uh, Before that, Nikesh, of course, edited the book The Good Immigrant. He's honestly really fascinating, really thoughtful, really pensive. And we have some lovely conversations about fatherhood and um, the importance of parents as well. It's really gorgeous. One to look forward to. But in the meantime, have a lovely week and we'll see you next week. Yes, enjoy the rest of your
3: long weekend.